Todd Stashwick. Woo-hoo! If I can, if I can quote Kevin Scott, woohoo! <laughs> that is something I've known. It is. I'm known you are known for. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. This episode's guest is none other than Mr. Todd Stashwick. He used to improvise with us when we were known as Burn Manhattan. He has been a TV and movie star for the last 20-some years. You may know him from uh, Sci-Fi Channel's 12 Monkeys. Maybe you know him from the the Disney movie, Kim Possible. You may know him from the series, The Riches, with Minnie Driver and Eddie Izzard, or his countless appearances on television programs, such as Star Trek, CSI, Law & Order, Supernatural, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Heroes, Private Practice, Burn Notice, Justified, The Originals, Gotham, SWAT. It's endless, people. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Mr. Todd Stashwick. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now, direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Huh. So, hey, Todd Stashwick. Todd yes, I, Stashwick. Yes, yes I am. I'm, I'm Hollywood of, Todd, we call you. I'm the king of compartmentalization. So let's yeah, go right? forth and have a fun time while the world yeah. burns. Right? What yeah. a year. So how is your apocalypse going? It. You know what? My mother has a great phrase, which is, uh, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And so uh, I am fortunate that I recognize my, uh, I'll use the word, privilege, that uh, our, our boat is sound. Uh, the kind of work that I do, um, aside from acting, I have, you know, I've diversified my income streams. And so uh, work has been plentiful. I have been able to continue to be uh, employed as well as my employment involves uh, creative output so creatively is satisfied um my children are healthy and happy my wife is healthy and happy obviously the stresses of the pandemic obviously the state of politics all these things add to i'm not going to pretend like it doesn't bear on my soul yeah um but, but I you and i both fortunate yeah. fortunate man i think i am too you know i i often forget that i'm lucky that i can worry about politics yeah 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 you i'm know. not worried about you know dysentery in my drinking water or gang lords running through my town or icbms blowing up my you know hospital yeah, and you we, can marry who live, you want to marry, and I can marry who I want to marry. I am not uh, persecuted for the color of my skin. Like I am beyond, uh, and therefore, you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. So you try to uh, be the change you want to see in the world. You know, I I, I vote uh, accordingly. I I support causes and charities that I believe to cause change. Um, and I myself ideally uh, try to live 
live in a way that uh, I can live with myself and respectful of the world and teach my children right so that they don't have to suffer in the way that other people have. Like, not my children specifically, but my children, it will help be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. Yep. So, um, why, I have a squeaky why we, chair. Why, oh, that's fine. <laughs> I have a can of WD-40 I keep on my desk. Yeah. Well, it's, like, it's like at the end of A Day in a Life. You know the you know that, that mm-hmm. story by the Ruddles. Well, no, the Beatles. That other that other, that other independent indie band from uh, that skiffle band from Liverpool. Yeah, I always confuse uh, the Beatles and the Ruddles. Which I one was real? Why. Well, they were all both real. Oh yeah, you're right. I mean, right. they weren't. Uh, they didn't exist in um, our minds. They were mm. three dimensional. Mm. Um, if you think about it, they were they were constructed. They wrote songs. They played music. So how are the Ruddles any less of a real band? I happen to like the Ruddles just a little bit more than the Beatles. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I think the Beatles were derivative. (laughs) Oh, Uh, man, I blew the gag. I blew it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a... So at the end of a day in life, uh, they, they have four pianos gathered in a room, and then they hit this piano chord, and it goes, gong which is there's another story to that so it it, it uh, and then if you listen super close on a really good recording you can hear somebody's piano bench uh creak oh yeah that really was nice. the capper that was the capper. Really nice. like keep that uh, in hey so paul was, keep that in that was really good oh so you liked it you know i'm gonna leave it in then all right then. You know what? We'll do a whole song. let's do an entire album of yeah. creaking benches am i the only one who likes the rattles more than us well, I don't believe in us. I just believe in Ruttles. What, so, so wait, were you doing John? Were I was doing, doing just a just a generic Liverpoolian, a generic Beatle, or you just, were just doing? Okay. I was doing the Ur Beetle, which is a combination of all four Beatles put together, plus a dash of Pete Best. Because they, yeah, I, was, I was doing stew. Um, I was doing stew. <laughs> stew uh, after the stroke. Oh, come on! This oh, got so on. dark. You like got so fast. dark. Really wow. fast. Click woo. Welcome like to 2020. To call, please hang up and try again. Oh man, he hung up um, on me. He did. Uh, the uh, but so okay. So here's the here's the footnote to that uh, Beatles story. That was the longest note held in pop music history. Until Prince's Purple Rain, he holds a guitar note longer. Oh, of course he did. He's like, yeah. I'm gonna do one better. I'm gonna be better than the Beatles. I'm, oh, it's pretty good, Prince. Thank you. I'm gonna it's be better than the Beatles. It's basically Fred Armisen's Prince. That's oh, that's it's the best one. And I, I actually, I actually use a line of his constantly in my life because it always makes me laugh. There was an episode of SNL where Drew Barrymore was was playing Pink, and, mm-hmm. and it's when uh, it was when him and Maya were doing the um, the Prince Prince show. Um, <laughs> And she was Beyonce, and he was Prince, and he would whisper things to her, and then occasionally he would ask questions. And my favorite question, he, he asks, and I continue to ask this of people in all earnestness because it's so strange. He goes, yo, Pink, do you live the life deluxe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Prince talk show. So... When you when you were a kid and you're yeah. watching SNL because that was the that was the beacon for all of us I think yes after the Muppets the Muppets yeah, were the gateway that was the drug primer. 
and maybe climber. some Three Stooges if you had Three Stooges on, on rascals, Saturday afternoons, Little Rascals. Yeah, yeah. But SNL was the one where you're like, oh, this is happening now. And oh, and let's people. not forget the Hudson Brothers. I'm trying to remember the names of their shows. Did they do was, Sigmund no, called, and the Sea it, Monsters? It, 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 no, the Hudson Brothers. You're thinking of Sid and Marty Sid and Croft. Marty Croft, right. Hudson, Hudson Brothers, Brothers was a Sid and Marty Croft show okay right as right. well as i believe the bay city rollers also had a saturday morning Briefly, yeah. variety show yeah and so all of those really set the stage and i do also remember a bit of laughing and carol burnett so yes, yes and carol burnett of course and flip wilson was flip wilson. briefly on and Jim i saw flip stafford had a had a variety they were just giving away variety shows yeah yeah i mean 70s. even uh what was it share sunny and share uh, yeah, yeah they all Lee. had comedy sketches and a very broad vaudeville stuff but snl was the one yeah. that was cool and was rock and roll up. yeah and it felt like it was live yeah it was live it was a little more dangerous and it was a little more like and it came about i guess at an age when we were getting a little bit older where suddenly, I think for everyone at some point, much like people discover the Beatles at some point in life, they discover SNL, and it speaks to a certain age, you know, when you want to rebel. I heard a story, uh, maybe I read it, that uh, like Catherine O'Hara was, was supposed to be part of the original member cast members, and she was brought into like the first writer's room meeting when they were all there, and, and Mr. Mike, uh, who... Uh, Michael O'Donohue. Michael O'Donoghue, he uh, he spray painted like danger on the mm -hmm. wall, and then uh, and, and O'Hara was like, "Yep, yeah, no, nope, not for me. I'm out." And she just got up and left. She's like, "I just wow. want to, I just want to be funny." So she like she just she just got out of there. She's like, "Yeah, that's wow. not my that's not my jam." This, and no, she's still be, delivering. I'm not here to be dangerous, and she's still amazing. So she's still just, amazing. Well, like she was dangerous and subversive without having to declare it or, or write it on the wall. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I mean, and look, though, and she's also still alive. Yeah. No. Oh, too soon. No, I, I, and, I, and I mean that in a, in a truthful way. Like there was this there was this sense of SNL that was very live on the edge. That yeah. They were self-destructive, the self-destructive. And uh, and and yeah. Yeah. Like abuse. Like. It was just the drugs and the whatnot of, the, of those early years, uh, and so I don't. I wasn't trying to be glib about that. I'm saying that there was obviously yeah. a different sensibility to the people that were doing SCTV as opposed to the people that were doing SNL. But as a young person, back to your original point, very attractive. Was there a particular sketch or performer that you were that like you were drawn to, or that, that spoke to you in a way? Bill Murray. Yeah, I mean, is that anybody's a surprise to anybody? I mean. Bill Murray, there was something so... Uh, I was never an energy performer like Belushi or uh, or like Machine Gunny, like like Aykroyd. I, I always loved how how uh, Murray pitched underhand. Mm -hmm. And that always attracted was attractive to me. Like there was this kind of sincere and sincerity and this sort of glib awareness and this blue collar Chicago boy to him. And uh, yet he was still the coolest cat in the room. Uh, all eyes would go to Murray whenever he would come onto the screen. And he just had you in his hand. And I, there was one interview or there was a Rolling Stone article about Murray years ago. And uh, they described him as having the ability to level institutions with the raise of an eyebrow. Hmm. I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to be that guy. Good guy to be.
So let's let's talk to your whole history then. As, you know, for we got an hour. So <laughs> but you you did like straight up theater as a kid and and including your college years. Like you well, were if you want to go actual... all the way back, speaking of the Muppet Show, we put on the Muppet Show in my garage with the puppets and the oh album and we built a stage and invited all the neighbor kids over to sit as I as I lip synced with my Kermit puppet to the uh, Paul Williams soundtrack of the Muppet movie. Yeah, so my performing days and doing all this with the with a broom for mom uh, go all the way back. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think Elvis you know, for the, I, broom, the broom being the guitar. Right. I uh, I've just been thinking a lot lately about how all performing on some level is we're putting on a show for our parents in our living room mm-hmm. and or garage. Yeah. And we just get to use bigger and bigger toys. Well, but you know, but the motivator is still kind of the same. Playing for fish, right? Right. And that fish is like approval, it's applause, it's reward that what you're doing in this exact moment is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of plays did you do? Like what was your high school? High school, let's see. I started out. Uh, were you like the during... lead? You know, were you like uh, the, that, the show a, kid? There was a title shift. I was... I was very fortunate because when I became, when I was a freshman in high school, all the people getting the leads were pretty much seniors. Mm -hmm. So by the time I hit my sophomore and junior year, there was a a graduation gap. And so I had been in a lot of plays, but suddenly I would say by my junior year, like, oh, we were the people with all the road underneath us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I did a lot of plays. Freshman year, I was in Oliver Twist, and then um, and then I did uh, Sound of Music, and I did Damn Yankees. So Damn Yankees, my sophomore year, Sound of Music, my junior year, and then by my senior year, it was Fiddler on the Roof, and I was Tevya. So oh, of course you were. So it was a slow progression, and there was a moment, and I think I can pinpoint it. Where if I if I'm looking through the the lens of my of my teacher Kathy Wandro, who you know I can you know you, you mark those people in your life that gave you the yeses that buoyed you forward to fortify you against that lifetime of no, and so um, Kathy Wandro was one of those people that gave me a yes, and I remember I was playing Max Deltweiler, who was like the attaché in. Um, Sound of Music. So there was the leads, the Von Trapps and Maria. And I wasn't one of them, but I was the sort of comic relief who was snotty and snooty. Um, and, there, and there was a moment where I, I enter with like my plaid jacket and my suitcase and my hat. And I literally have to go backstage, do a costume change and show up at the top steps in a, in a tux in the matter of like 30 seconds. So it was this massive, fast change. And I got to the top of the stairs. And when I entered in my tux, I went, presto, change-o. And <laughs> the audience went stupid. Like, yeah. they went stupid crazy. And there was, like, a power in that. And and my teacher told me, she's like, that's the moment that I realized I wanted you for Tevya for your senior year. So she literally came backstage. After that performance in my junior year, she goes, I have an idea for next year. And she looks at you. She goes, but you have to take choir. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, okay. And so it was one of those moments where she was like already priming the pump. Yeah. Of letting me know. And I still went through the whole audition process. But I think she was like, you know, 
this this guy has a thing that that works uh, on stage. As I say, there's a lot of things in this world that I am not good at, a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. But acting is the one thing I am good at. Yeah, uh, and I and I say this because uh, I have I have seen rewards for doing it in front of people, and I've been trained, and I've and I'm proud of the work that I do. Um, sometimes and sometimes I suck miserably, but yeah. that's part of how you get better. But so those were the that was a big key moment. And the other big key moment in high school, which actually will seg into what you and I are, how we know each other, is we did uh, variety shows in high school and, and the students would write them and the students would host them. And so there was like a framing device where I played like a lounge singer Bill Murray character and we did like a telethon. And, uh, and so I would come out, do a shtick with a mic or sing a song or do a little bit. And that was my junior year. And that was intoxicating because it was like me, a microphone, an audience walking around among them, riffing, improvising. Uh, and then I was like, then because I wasn't a sports kid, I suddenly was getting attention from the ladies. Mm-hmm. Then it was like, wow, he was the funny guy who was on that show. Oh, my God. I and, remember getting attention yeah. from ladies from other area high schools from being <laughs> in the play. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, this is huge. Yeah, First of is. all, there's other ladies. That yeah. was huge just there's, to know that. And that they were drawn to me. I know. It was a, it's a weird thing, right? Yeah, it was very powerful. The moment for me when, when I felt like, similar to your, you know, uh, Presto Changeo, we did Guys and Dolls. Um, and like, just like your director, you know, you don't do Fiddler unless you know, you've got a Tevia. Right. We did guys and dolls and I, it was chosen because of the, you know, the rising yeah. seniors yeah. and there's a, there's a part in it. I was Nathan Detroit and his part yeah. was like, we can get married. Like he, he's been engaged to Adelaide for 14 years and he keeps dangling marriage. So at one point I improvised in front of an audience. Uh, the name of my teacher was Lou Volpe. So I said, we can have a, a nice you know, white picket fence, just like the Volpes have. And I just ad-libbed it. The place went nuts. And that was a moment for me where I was like, holy, holy cow, the power. And then everyone in the cast started ad-libbing stuff after that. And Volpe came back and like yelled at everybody. We would run the show for like three weeks. Sure. So he came back and he's like, no more ad-libbing. There's a script. No, you know, no one gave you permission to do this, blah, blah, blah. So then I didn't say the line next time and afterwards he's like why didn't you say that line he said you said no ad lib he said no that was for the other people and him saying that to me was i mean like it was monumental oh sure monumental someone i admire someone who can put all this stuff together permission gave me permission literally gave me permission different than the others exactly yeah exactly you have to feel that you are special to have the beans, if you will, to go well, out into yeah. the world and try and to do it. And that requires really good teachers. And it's and you don't want, and, and the thing is, is every, you know, you, you've been in the education system. Every kid has a thing that they should have the flames, uh, you know, have, have the flames fanned in them. Mm-hmm. Some kids it's acting, some kids it's music, some it's poetry, some it's football, some it's shop, some it's everything. Everybody's got their, their thing, their proclivity, the thing that they should be, you know, chase the, their gift chasing down. A good teacher sees what each kid needs and is able to whisper in their ear in such a way. And mm-hmm. so, so going back to that, that like I had the right teacher that saw what my 
coal, my ember needed flaming and she flamed it or she fanned it. Yeah. So, and then, so you went to college for theater. You were like an acting major and you went to a school, ISU, correct? I say university. Which is where like John Malkovich went. Yeah, and Laurie Metcalf. And Laurie Metcalf. It's like Gary, a serious. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. All those Steppenwolfies. Yeah. Um, Sean it's like Hayes. A, Sean Hayes. What was it? What was it like being? You know, you're, you're Tevia in high school, and then you go to this university. Well, which first obviously I went to Loyola University. Oh, you did. Yeah, I went to Loyola University, and that was fascinating because I went there on a scholarship. Uh, they didn't offer an acting class to freshmen. Mm. And so that, but then they cast me as the lead in Bus Stop. I was Bo in Bus Stop. But my only training had been high school. And now I was, quote unquote, competing at a college level. And so I had all these bad habits, but I didn't have a regular class to beat them out of me. So, so they took my scholarship away. Wow. Because I sucked in Bus Stop, even though it went to like regional theater festivals and, and whatnot. Uh, it was a, great cast but it was really a hard time for me going to isu because everything that you know i had promised myself and there's also a big seminal moment i was just feeling like shit about myself in college and uh i they took my scholarship away i wasn't getting cast uh I, i was feeling bad i was heartbroken i was probably having too many party weekends uh the girl that i loved didn't love me back all of that nonsense. Um, and so I was dragging myself around. Uh, and at Thanksgiving, I came home to visit my folks. And I remember we were in the car somewhere. And I was just depressed, staring at the floor of the car. And there was this moment where I went, oh, I could I could leave. Mm. I don't have to. Because you think this, like, I'm, I'm going to college and I'm locked in for four years. Yeah. And you go, no, 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 no. I, it, it's my hands on the wheel. I'm paying these people a lot of money to make me feel bad about my ability. I know I'm better than this, but they've pigeonholed me now. And so then I go back, have like another month of school before we're going to break. I've decided to leave. And my buddy Tom Studer was doing a directing class thing. And he saw something in me. He's like, I want to do these Bogosian monologues. And I want you to do a Bogosian monologue. And I'll direct it. And you do it. It's a one-man bit. And you'll go up and, and and you'll do it. And so he and I worked on this. Like It was like a five-page monologue out of out of uh, Drinking in America, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Bogosian thing. And it was really dark. And it was really funny. It was a really great character. And I went up and did it. And then suddenly the faculty was like, oh, who is this guy again? Yeah. And then I was just like, it was like I got to, in many ways, leave with both fingers in the air. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. How you like me now? And so I, like, I, I was like, if you give me, if you give me direction, if you give me uh, guidance, I will get rid of my bad habits because I have, you know, as I've, as they say, you, you talent uh, is one thing, skill is another. Skill is that which can be repeated. I just didn't have skills. Yeah. I just had raw talent. And so I left there. I, I came back home. I started doing uh, community theater. I did Biloxi Blues and uh, waiting tables and doing community college so that I could transfer to ISU eventually. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that you gave yourself permission to do. A lot of people would have just changed their major. No. I, think. I, I sealed off the exits. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and so you you go to ISU. Yeah. D- totally different story when you get there. Um, got another scholarship. Uh, st- you know it's interesting. I had a great time at ISU, but once again, I think you and I are Joker boys, right? And yeah. And we're Second City boys. We're improv boys, and I don't think that school necessarily knew exactly what to do with me mm-hmm. because you go, well, we have our mammoth guy and we have our Shakespeare guy and we have our Moliere guy and, and, and all these guys were talented. I mean, it's just a great school filled with talented people. My buddy, Doug Simpson went there with me. Like I said, Sean Hayes, um, really talented people. Uh, but I was the guy who's like, no, I, I'll do I'll do Sam Shepard. I'll do Moliere. I'll do no. I'll do all. I'll do it all, but yeah. uh, because I'm a character. I see. I'm a character guy, and so they still. I still got cast. In fact, I did a Dario Fo play where I played five roles in it, and it was done like a Saturday Night Live. It was very sketchy, very broad, um, and so I had a great time. But I think the most valuable things that I did there was directing my own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and putting my own stuff. But the other thing that they have is they have movement training and voice training and, and text analysis and all of the, the training training of being an actor so that, you know, I know how to crack a script and break it down. I know how to modulate my voice and know what it sounds like and learn dialects and how to move yeah. and all Yeah, that. those skills are essential. Like skill comes in when the talent doesn't show up or, right. you know what I mean? Like you're yeah. waiting for that alchemical magical thing. If you've got skills, you're going to make it happen every time. Right. I, yeah, I said to a buddy of mine the other day, uh, we were having a conversation. Like I said, talent is the, is the drawing back, the knocking back of the bow, the potential skill is allowing it to hit the bullseye every time. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'm going to start using that just in every day. Just, I see people on the street. I'm just going to say it to them. Hey, Winnie. Hey, yeah. And she was, shut up, dad. I don't need any more advice. You You already got me the (laughs) t-shirt. Oh, please. So, all right, let's fast forward. So you're, you're done at ISU. You're you're trying to figure out who you are and you're, I already knew who I was. I was a second city boy. You're from Chicago. So you knew, you knew you're going to go to Chicago at some point. Well, I, I didn't have any reason to go anywhere else. I knew eventually I wanted to get to Los Angeles because I wanted to be on I wanted to be a Ghostbuster. So, right. uh, but I knew how the route for me would be via Second City. So I'm like I'm already here. I live in Chicago. The like and what a fortuitous thing like being influenced by SNL and all those cats uh, to have Second City right there. And and uh, even more fortuitous, there was a Second City Northwest, which was. Uh, 20 minutes from my house. Yeah, that's in, convenient. I lived in the suburbs of Chicago. My buddy Lou introduced me to Cheryl Sloan, uh, daughter of Joyce Sloan. And uh, Cheryl was a producer at Second City. And uh, she was uh, the producer of Second City Northwest. And he introduced me to her. He said, hey, my buddy Todd uh, wants to wants a job here tearing tickets. Because when I was at Loyola, uh, my friend Holly Wartell was performing in the Second City Touring Company. My freshman year, they were perform- They did a free show for freshmen at Loyola. And I walked to the front of the stage afterwards, and, I, and Holly Wartell was tying her shoes. And I said, hey, how do you get into Second City? She's like, well, get a job there so you can watch it every night. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and you can get your classes covered. And so, so I immediately, right out of college, went to Second City Northwest, got a job tearing tickets because I knew 
I could study there. And then I knew that job could transfer downtown, tearing tickets and bartending and waiting tables. So I would have employment while I was studying uh, in the training center. That's awesome. So we met at the training center. It's funny you mentioned Ghostbusters because I have a fond, vivid memory of the first time we hung out outside of class. Yep. I think it was at your apartment. And we were trading our like Ghostbusters sequel fan fiction ideas. Right. Because <laughs> like I, I, you know, I spent my whole life trying to pitch my Ghostbusters sequel to people that couldn't care less. Right. And then finally here's someone who's like, oh, I'd love to hear your Ghostbusters sequel if you will hear mine. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, there's another one. Mine involved Pandora's box, I believe. Mine, yes, it, exactly. And mine was about a, a fake tuna company that was putting ghosts in the tuna cans <laughs> <laughs> to spread ghosts. As you do. Yeah, so we bonded. And, you know, Second City is one of those places where you meet people of your tribe. You know, yes. other yes. sort of oddballs. Yes. That just want to be funny. Yes. What did you learn most from Second City? You also took classes at I.O., Simul simultaneous. So what what did and, you get from those classes you didn't get at, at ISU? Like what are the skills? Um, but I, they didn't have improv classes at ISU, so so I didn't have a grip on what that meant. Like I didn't understand. I mean, obviously, I was given the skills of listening uh, and and reacting, but. You know, the heightening, the exploring, the group mind, the this. I mean, I, I, I you know, it's, uh, it's, it's going back to what we were saying. It's like the whole idea of, we were talking about the Beatles earlier. You join, you know, you join a band to meet girls and then you fall in love with music. So mm. I joined Second City to get hired because I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. But then I fell in love with improvisation. Right. Um, I, yeah, at first, it was just a means to an end. I remember Joe Keefe, us sitting in our class with Joe Keefe and he went around the room. He's like, I want everybody to tell me why you're here. And everybody had very noble responses. Like, I just want to increase my skills as an actor. And then like it, it, and I, I, that, I don't mean, I just just doing a silly voice. I think that's a very valid reason to take improv. Yeah, um, totally. But then it came around to me and I just said, I want to get hired by the time I'm 23. Hmm. Uh, to Second City. And Joe Keefe just went, good, auditions are in October. Next, who's next? <laughs> he would just move right past me. Yeah. But, but I but I, I kind of went in hell-bent for leather. And, uh, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. I Mick Napier in uh, either level one or 1A one yeah, did the same thing. And I was like, uh, yeah, I want to I direct movies. You know, I want to be yeah. uh, Woody Allen or Warren Beatty. And he was like, why, why do you want to do that? Just be in the moment, be in the moment. I was like, no, I want to be in the moment, but with expensive toys. You know, I want to, <laughs> I, I, of course I want to be an artist, but my chosen art form has ha happens to cost millions of dollars and you got to be famous in order to command that kind of power. So I kind of got a pass, but Mick's the kind of guy that look, gives you the side eye the moment you show any ambition. Yes. Yeah. But you know what? You also need those, purity gatekeepers there too because then you know by the time that we got to uh burr manhattan we were purity gatekeepers yeah i think you need a little bit of both i mean you, you know, oh i don't disagree intrinsic and extrinsic what mick was saying was the intrinsic was more powerful and he knew i needed to learn that lesson That's what eventually yeah. i did yeah you know i need to yeah. be doing it for for me and the band i need to walk off stage and feel good that i did 
what I wanted to do and not yes. necessarily race to the lobby to see if the groupies are there. Or the agent, yeah. Or the agent or yeah. whatever that extrinsic thing yeah, so, was. So those are, and I think with, you know, I, I got my 10,000 hours. I mean, Second City was my Hamburg where yeah. I was on the road getting calluses, you know, with the funniest people in the country with Adam McKay and Neil Flynn and Susie Nakamura. And like, uh, I just was, I just was very fortunate, Nancy Walls, to, to tour with just amazingly talented people that I could learn from or just outright steal from. And then just banging it out on stage in front of an audience on the road, night after night, after night, after night, after night. And so it was, it's crazy. And yeah. I, I cannot believe I did it. Like, um, I didn't tour like you did, but yeah. you know, just going to Chicago, taking yeah. the classes, yeah. being around it, seeing shows as many nights in a row as I could, um, you know, either by my peers or by, you know, we would see Carell and Colbert. Yeah. Carell was, I, Carell was my Machu Picchu. Yeah. We got to see those guys working it out every night. At Tim Colbert, Meadows, yeah. Meadows, you know, um, Pasquazy. and then later, you know, Amy Poehler and Poehler. Tina Fey, you know, people of Amy our Sedaris. generation doing it. And yes, well, Sedaris was, she was untouchable. She next, was next level, next level, next. And to witness that every night. And then like, that's just a person. And we're hanging around in the same place. We're in the same world. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty phenomenal. And at the same time in Chicago, you had, you know, this group of the Tracy Letzes and, and yep. the, the Guy Van Swear engines, these people. Yeah. The Annoyance Theater, like just so fertile. These, it really was have, like it was like Paris in the twenties. Like it, it, it just, really it, was. There was this, and if you look at the current shape of of popular entertainment, when you move it to the top of the list, you go, yeah, those people in the early nineties. Uh, I don't include myself in that group because I'm not certainly shaping the shape of current comedy entertainment. Um, but when you look at the phase, the Polars, the Colberts, the Carells like the, the the McKay's, like those guys taking risks and swinging big then shaped comedy. And then, and then the, I would say that the, the generation just after me, which is, which is the, the uh, King of Michael Key and, 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 and those cats. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. uh, the Sudeikis. Uh, so there was, there is such a, I'm so K proud. Yeah. K Cannon. Yeah. I'm so proud to have, to have come from that Vanessa Bayer, like to have come from that stock to have been part of it. Uh, I, you know, I had a different relationship to it. I was, I felt a little bit more as an observer and a less of uh, Favreau for Christ's sake. Like, Oh my God. Part of that. Like the Mandalorian. I'm saying, and uh, Iron, Iron Man. Man. <laughs> so the so, adventures, like, like like literally shaping pop culture as we know it today. So, so there, what a wonderful heyday. So when I say it was Paris in the twenties, like all those expats, like when you had Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Dorothy Parker, like all of them sipping uh, Zelda, <laughs> sipping absinthe and doing their thing. That's sort of on, on the from the improv comedy level. That's sort of what was going on in the early nineties in Chicago. Totally, totally. UCB, UCB. Yeah, it was all happening all at that time. It was a very special time. It really was. Um, 
I think it's because, you know, we were the sort of the first group of people that watched SNL and, and comedy becoming cool and rock and roll in a way it hadn't in the culture. You know, we went to try and, you know, that was our Nashville to figure out how to do that. Yes. Yes. It was the, and, mecca, the mecca of improv. So you're in Chicago, all those people are around and second city, much like when you go to a university or something, you know, there's, there's a hierarchy, it's a pyramid and not everyone gets to go to the top. At what point did you think, I want to, I want to try to do something else because it's, it's not going to happen for me here. I mean, did, was that something you thought? So here's what was happening for me in Chicago. Uh, and there was many things. I had started a theater company with, uh, with Oliver Ortel, Megan Schumacher, and Shauna Kofed called Movable Feast. Speaking of Paris in the uh, mm-hmm. in the twenties, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was sensing that then, so it was interesting that we chose that as the name. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, so I was doing that. I was doing Improv Olympic and studying with Del Close and performing at I.O. I was uh, taking classes at Second City and waiting tables and watching shows there. Eventually, hired to the touring company. Then I was hired to Second City Northwest. Then I was sent to second city detroit and opened a show there then i came back to chicago did more with my theater company and uh understudied main stage um and then second city northwest so second city northwest before after detroit and then uh snl came calling and they invited uh, a bunch of us to fly out and audition for saturday night live so there wasn't a things aren't happening here it was it was oh uh, things are happening yeah the opposite the opposite it was it was oh this is all working this is all like this baited the hook that i wanted to bait and uh i, I am now fishing in a bigger pond um, and so it was more about, well, I could try and stick around and get a regular spot on main stage or know that I've got agents in New York who are interested in me. I always wanted to live in New York. SNL, I didn't book it, but now it was just sort of saying the winds ha- uh, have changed and it is time. I was 26, 26, 26, 27. Uh, yeah, it's 26. And so it's like, I have done what I needed to do in Chicago. I have learned the lessons. I have made the friends. Uh, it's time to go. And I left Chicago in 95. You auditioned at Studio 8H. Yes. On home base. Yeah. On the Saturday Night Live set. Where the, where the host does the monologue. Yeah. Not too many people can say they've done that. Well, I mean, I will. Do you ever look back and say, that's as close as you can get? Um... You know, it's interesting because there's several things like I, I lead the life that I lead. Uh, I lead a life without regrets. Um, I was sad at the time, uh, but what a cool thing. And um, it was the biggest thing that had happened to me since getting hired by Second City. So it was a natural progression. I always say you end up doing more of what you're doing right now. So if you're not mm-hmm. doing anything, you're going to continue not doing anything unless you do something to change that. But once you put energy into something, objects in motion stay in motion. And I think you end up, if you continue to see what that thing can become and say yes to that thing, it becomes more of it. So the fact that I said yes to going to Chicago, the fact that I said 
yes to learning improv, then boom, I got hired to Second City, boom, I got up for SNL. So, so the plan was working. Yeah. So let's just talk briefly about your New York days. Oh, Kevin, you were there. I was there. So, I could just so tell you your about life. Our New York days. Let's talk about our New York days. Well, we we met at Second City in the classes, and we sort of hung Immediate out. Immediate fast friends. Immediate fast friends, and then Movable Feast did a sketch show. I got to be part of that. You're one of the best. And that parts felt of it. really You're great. great. God, it was such a great I time. I want to eat a big ass bowl of this font. It was just so silly because typefaces were new. We're yeah. all getting into look at know. this font. That's a sexy font. I want a big ass bowl of this font. So silly. Uh, it was a really great show, and it was just you know great to work on a great show. Sort of that thing of, of intrinsic motivation versus external. It wasn't like oh this show's going to make it for us. We were trying to say something about our generation. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, a little pretentious, but you know what? My one of my favorite things uh, that Adam McKay ever said is he goes, I'd rather be pretentious than boring. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. So I don't, like, I never, you're pretentious, never minded being pretentious. You're taking, a, you're taking a big swing at least. Yeah, you're trying to do something, trying to be high minded. And, and I, I had written some plays and stuff. And for me, you know, it was like, honestly, it was my, my father passed away and I was relatively young, uh, you know, early 20s. And I'm like, you know, kind of feeling, well, what do I want to do with my life? And I wanted to be, you know, I always wanted to be in New York, just like you yep. said. And I was like, well, what am I waiting for? I'll do it now. And you were moving to New York at the same time. Yeah. So we, we moved around the same yep. time and immediately started. I grabbed a few people that I knew and you grabbed a few people that you knew and we formed a group. Well, we were together. also living together. We were living together. That is right. 50th Street and, uh, and 9th. Yeah, which was crazy. Railroad apartments. Yeah. The things you do in your twenties. Well, I remember speaking of. So I was living with I was living with Aaron Purcell for a bit. I was sleeping on a couch in the village, and just before you had moved there, and uh, and Johnny T had got there, and I remember Johnny T and I walking around on Halloween because uh, I moved in October, and then Johnny mm -hmm. T got there, and we were walking around the village during Halloween, which was insane coming from Chicago. It was like, wow, this is a city city. Um, yeah. And uh, and that was great. And then I remember going to your railroad apartment before I moved in because Deanie and those guys, not Deanie, Denise, and Mike mm -hmm. and Denise were there still. And so mm -hmm. I came and I remember watching that Beatles box set. Yeah. So, and that was before I moved in, but those guys were moving out. So it was like, you're like, dude, I got a spot. If you need a spot to live, I got a spot. And and so I moved in with you and Rani. Yeah. And it was uh, super awesome because all we cared about was comedy mm -hmm. and Star Wars probably. Yep. Um, and just nerding out 24 hours a day. Yep. And trying to keep it, keep each other motivated and excited to do stuff. And it, we also converted the living room into a rehearsal space yeah. for us to do our improv. We would invite Shira Piven over yeah. to direct us. And we got had Matt Higgins yeah. and Jay Roderick and Tease. Remember, because like, we were talking about, like, we we're junkies as far as improv goes. We're like, we need a space to play out. You had been doing a show uh, with, uh, with uh, a bunch of people. And, um, yeah, senseless. senseless. It was like a. a it was directed satire. by an ex Second City touring guy, and we're trying to use the Second City method to yeah. do political social stuff. So, so I remember thinking like like wanting to do some 
knowing we didn't want to do the kind of short form stuff we were doing in Chicago, we wanted to do something a little more like Bang Bang and uh, just, but a little more, a little less casual, but sort of take the polish of Second City, but combine it with much more experimental. And I remember lying uh, on the futon, which was on the floor because it was the 90s. Um, and, uh, and and the, the image of a poster came into my head of four of us with suits walking down the street in Soho with torches and the words burn Manhattan. And I remember walking <laughs> and it was a black and white poster. And I remember walking into the kitchen, uh, our, our dirty little kitchen, uh, and with my, my now wife was there, you were there and Renee was there. And I just literally, it was like, it all sort of went, I went burn Manhattan. Us in like, like, like reservoir dog suits, but we'll call it Burn Manhattan instead of a funny name. And you're like, because you're because you're Kevin Scott, you're like, let's do it. When do we start? <laughs> and so let's do it. So I called yeah. Shira Piven. No, I called Adam McKay and said, here's my idea for a thing. And then he goes, well, he's like, I obviously, because he was, you know, one of the head writers of Saturday Night Live. He's like, I can't do that. That sounds awesome. But the woman that I'm dating right now, who is now his wife, um, he goes, she's looking to to do experimental improv. Let me connect you with her. And I remember seeing her and Kate Walsh, by the way, at an SNL, a, a, a taping of SNL. Was I at that no, taping? I don't, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, because I remember seeing Shira at one, but she might have been at all of them. But yeah, she might have been at all of them. But she was there with Kate, actually. Uh, so we were there. And uh, and so I sat down and had lunch with Shira and pitched my idea, which actually had makeup and pompadours. And I wanted to like really push, push, push. Mm -hmm. Which all that falls away because of attrition. Uh, but then I went and got Johnny Teese and, and, and Levy. And you went and got Matt and Jay. It was a it was a magical time. Magic time number two. Yeah, yeah, it was really yeah, exactly. It was magical time number two. 2. Having 0. had some great stuff in Chicago, you mentioned Bang Bang briefly. That was my my group, and and it was funny because Bang Bang, we were very pretentious, bunch of basically Steppenwolf, you know, theater guys who literally are all with Steppenwolf now and have won the Pulitzer and stuff like that, and trying to use the tools of Second City to do. Steppenwolf style theater, you know, like improvise a play every night. But I don't know if it was egos or just inexperience or whatever. We never really had a strong director. It was just chaos on stage. And in that way, we were saying, you know, like talent versus skill. It was all talent that sometimes was brilliant and very little shared skill that would have some of the worst shows ever. And it wasn't until Burn Manhattan came along and we had a strong director and you know, sort of some maturity that we're able to sort of figure out how to do what we were trying to do. So Bang Bang was the quarry men. Exactly. And Burn was the Beatles. Beatles. Sort of just figuring I'm out. I'm just going to continue to hammer this Beatles metaphor in. Of course. If you're going to compare yourself to right, someone, you better be like, someone yes. legendary. Yes. You know, we nothing were, pretentious in that. We were the turtles of... <laughs> we were Herman's hermits. Um, yeah, and it was like... Uh, yeah, it was like it felt so good to be like, oh, we were figuring this thing out, and it was we weren't we didn't butt heads. No, we weren't no. argumentative. We were all saying yes together all the time. Let's just do this, yeah. and the proof was in the pudding. We yeah. did great shows. Yeah. We all stretched ourselves and each other, yeah. and 
we had a director who just loved what we were doing and we had audiences that loved what we were doing. There's nothing more satisfying. And in the best of all possible worlds, that's all we would have done for the rest of our lives. I'm saying that in all honesty. Like, of course, like I said to Mick Napier, I would love to be making movies and all that stuff, but it would be with us, yeah. with our group. 100%. With our tools, doing what we we were doing. And it's such a special thing. And I look at regular people and I I... I feel for them because many of them never had some, and I feel very lucky and very fortunate. We all it was it, we all had the bandwidth to take that big swing. We all we all wanted the same thing uh, from it. We all were literally doing it for the love of the game. There was not. Uh, I mean, we had thoughts and ideas of like, how can we translate this to television? But we didn't, that that wasn't the goal. Like the UCB guys were so focused and it paid off for them to go, we're doing this so that we get this, so we get this. I think with Burn, it was much more of a, a sort of an artist's collective, if you will. Of Yeah, of, and we all felt, we all had confidence that at some point it was going to break open, like something would happen. Burly Bear. Um we thought uh, we thought we were gonna go off Broadway like Blue Man, but then and then there was a moment where we were we had a producer who wanted to take it off Broadway, and he handed us a, a contract the size of a phone book, and we were it was like and after seven years you can maybe buy your idea back, and I don't think yeah. any of us were like I don't think we have eight shows a week in us, uh, and I don't think you could sustain an improv show for eight shows a week. And I don't think, uh, and we weren't going to make enough to sustain a living. Uh, right. It was just a very strange, you know, as these things go. And I don't think, and, and, and you know, I had eyes on LA and there were other, other goals that people wanted to achieve that I think. Yeah. We, yeah. we had a manager at that time and he looked at the contract and he says, look, there's going to be other offers. There's going to be better offers. Let's wait. And we were like, yeah, let's do it. And none of us thought that that wouldn't happen, you know, and maybe we had to put in another six months, another eight years, but life gets in the way and other things happen. And, you know, and Kate, Kate had come and gone by then, I think too, like Kate had already been in the group and Spencer. And so we're like, all right, people have gone. Um, people, people have, it's, it's not, it's not forever, you know, and, and, no. and Kate went to go to be on TV. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we were like, oh, that could be a route too, yeah. that if this isn't working. And I was coming you know, and we going were... to, to, I was going to LA for pilot season and coming back. Uh, but I will say it's like the, the memories of the shows uh, are as vivid as if, and, and this, we're talking 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Uh, a while ago. Yeah, I mean, we started late 95, 96. So yeah, 24 years ago that we began the venture. Um, but I still like remember some, like it was it was, it was the biggest swings. Uh, we, yeah. we took big swings with with the art form that I was proud of. And it shaped my work with, with uh, Doubtful Guests. It shaped your work with Centralia. Uh, it, uh, I, you know, I, I founded an improv school, uh, on it, uh, with the foundations that, uh, was, uh, you know, John Teese and myself. So it, it, it suddenly, it became the seed that grew other trees. It was very cool. So how, what, what are you doing now? So you're, you're, 
you write games, I'm video games. I'm currently writing video games, yeah. And you're doing a lot of D&D role-playing stuff. Yeah. What do you want to talk about first? Well, the writing, you know, the writing is is the writing. It's a job. It's wonderful. And there's not much to say in terms of, A, I can't talk about what I'm writing, so that's no fun. Uh, but it's writing, you know, it's, 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 it's the same process. I get in a room, uh, I have writing partners. We bounce ideas back and forth. We settle on nice ideas and then we type them and then we shape what we typed. And then we hand it into people who give us notes and then we reshape what we typed and then they give us checks. So, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a dumb question to ask, but like, I guess it's how does improv make you a better writer? Like, do you ever remind yourself to just yes and or to let go or get out of your head or anything like that. I don't have to remind myself because uh because you know it's like if if you've always run if you run marathons then your muscles are shaped and attuned to run marathons. Uh if you uh I started improv with, with in earnest in 1990. So that's 30 years ago. So this is how I approach acting. It's how I approach writing. It's all pushed through the lens of improvisation because that is, you know, you and I went to mass. We got our master's degree at improv in that between Chicago, Burr, Manhattan and all the work that we've done after. This is what we have our doctorate in, essentially. So, right. so everything, all my approach is through improv. Even your, you mentioned your acting, like you're often a paid actor. You're, you're a that's, new movie just came out. That's actually my day job, in. yeah. And you've been on TV shows and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I know in a lot of times in TV, you don't really get a chance to improv, but do you like, is there a way that you get to apply it, even if it's just internal and in, in your process? You're saying there's no way to improvise because I'm not making up my own words. Then we're confusing what it means to improvise. Uh, Right. So I improvise all the time, meaning I get into a scene. My partner gives me something. I have a natural, uh, honest reaction to that something in character. And but I happen to say what the writer's writing written. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it's sense. all still improv. Right. It's just I, I, it's still give and take. It's still, it's still active exploring. listening. It's, it's like it's running through. A, a follow remote, the follower. Follow power, yeah. Chase the scene. All of it's happening. Have you ever had like a, a professional acting job where you got to ad lib dialogue or, or improvise? 12 Monkeys. Uh, I had a very great collaborative relationship with the showrunner and the writers there where they would let me come up with stuff. Um, and, and I consider that more ad libbing than improving. It's not like mm -hmm. they just sort of tore, tore open the scene. Just say, just do one for you. Like it were, just say whatever you want. Like there's been moments where I, I would pitch a line or say something else or throw in a different line there and there. Um, I did a pilot once that was all improvised where we would literally improvise the scene and then go back and do it again with the cameras rolling. I also did Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is sort of how that show was run. Um, so yeah, I've had a lot where uh, where I have been writing dialogue on my feet so you did the curb with the seinfeld i was crew. the president of nbc yes i gotta be honest like if that was me i would have just retired after that day. <laughs> i would have been like <laughs> are you kidding me yeah i'm in a seinfeld uh, yeah i got to basically walk rebuilt the set and so i got to walk around the seinfeld set oh my god it was both seinfeld and curb yeah, you got to be on two 
iconic shows. Sort of, yeah. Simultaneously. Yeah, that's crazy. That's just crazy. That crazy. Um, and super, super awesome. I mean, that's like, that's huge. huge. Yeah, I've had that's a huge. lot of pitch me moments in my life uh, between writing and acting. They've taken me to some wonderful places. Like my com- improv has taken me to Scotland. Uh, writing has taken me to Skywalker Ranch. Like, it's just been, I, I'm very, you know, we talked earlier about, uh, I, I, I recognize and live in gratitude of, of the things that I'm, I'm not going to say I haven't worked hard for. I absolutely have. Uh, and I've reaped the benefits of my hard work. And I have a lot of gratitude for that. So um, let's, let's jump into what you're doing now because, uh, you know, you're writing, you can't talk about it. I can't talk Obviously. about it. I, I, I'm, I'm working on stuff for Skydance Interactive or new Skydance New Media. Uh, so we're working on a kind of a new thing, a new approach, and it's going to be very cool and uh, with a very cool IP. And, and I can't talk about that. I just completed writing a video game uh, that uh, I have yet to be able to announce what it is, but uh, it's in the wild a little bit. The, the game isn't finished, but stuff about the game is out there but my name has not been attached to it yet because of that's how they roll that stuff out let's talk about the D stuff you're doing because you're you're really passionate about it so much fun. and we've played one game together we had sort of a burn manhattan reunion yeah. to play D. it was fun <laughs> which was super fun but obviously myself and matt jay knew a little bit more we were just sort of like what exactly is happening yeah you're you're newbies <laughs> It takes a bit. We're total newbies, and 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 it also takes a bit from an improviser to go. Oh wait, there there are certain parameters. It isn't a free for all. Uh, yeah, but it is. It, you do make choices, character choices. You do play scenes, uh, and then you roll the dice to see uh, what is the outcome of the choices that you make. Right, right. It adds some sort of random external factor. Yeah, the the uh, the unforgiving. Uh, a dispassionate uh, eye of the universe that is the dice roll. But you're a you're a dungeon master. I'm a dungeon master. That's what you do. So you you write the story. It re- relies on that skill. Yep. And then as an improviser, you guide people through the I, quest. I guide them through. I tell them what they're seeing and what's attacking them. And then I run the combat of the attack. And then I you know I lay down the clues. I let the mystery unfold. I I uh, and so it's you're sort of in early D and D games. Back when Gygax was the man and Dave Arneson and all those cats back in Lake Geneva, they called it a referee. Hmm. They, they, called the, they called him a referee. But as the story part started becoming more important, because originally it was just miniatures and wargaming, and then the story part and the role-playing uh, evolved. Uh, it evolved into Dungeon Master. It, it, from Game Master to Dungeon Master. Do you feel like the D and D and what you're doing now is like the perfect distillment of all the things you love. There's, it is kind of a nexus, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's gaming. It's very nerdy, yeah. uh, you know, sci-fi ish. Yeah, and... yeah. It's also why is there's a public and a and a private version of it. Like I do a lot of streaming D and D for charity mm-hmm. events and the like. Uh, so there is a very public version of it, and then I do a lot of as you have been a part of private games that we do on zoom or when the world's not burning uh i invite people over to my nerd lair and we play out in my garage (laughs) 
I just find it so delightful that you, at your age, <laughs> are still playing with the toys you loved. Oh, it doesn't stop. As a kid. Because it's amazing. Are you ready for the segue? Ready? Yeah. Because my life yeah. is just one big nerd circus. Nerd circus. That's your new venture. Your it's Todd Stashwick's nerd circus. Yeah. How did this come about? Like, why do you why do you like go from you know doing whatever you're doing? You're like, I've got to do this thing. Like, what's what's in the same way that you're like, it's called Burn Manhattan. <laughs> what is it that sparks these things for you to go like, I need to make this thing? I'm gonna say I'm gonna use a Kevin Scott phrase. Uh, which is, I need a new hat. Mm. And and I have a lot of creative energy. And I mm-hmm. always like digging into a different form. So it's like, oh, I want to form an improv group or I want to form a theater company. Now I don't want to just do that. I want to do a school. Now I just want to, mm-hmm. now I want to take the improv group that I did, but do it as Victorian ghosts. Now I want mm-hmm. to, and so... So then I was playing a lot of D&D privately. And then that led into me streaming D&D and then running them on, running the games online, which then is like, oh, okay, well, this is kind of cool. Like there is an audience out there for this stuff, which was, has been proven out by like Critical Role and, and, and shows like that and Dungeon Run. And um, I also love to like Kevin you're the same where you're like I love a thing and I want to share it like mm-hmm. I want like here taste this pizza because it's really good it's my favorite so mm-hmm. that being said that also extends itself to a vibe so when I think about Dungeons and Dragons it lives very much in this sort of late 70s mystique of like orange and brown and listening to sticks as was I was a kid with my trapper keeper and my and my dungeon master's guide and my and my uh, cigar box rolling dice in a wood panel basement with orange shag. I'm like, so that's what D and D feels like. It's like it's Stranger Things, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, God, I was and I was looking at the, sort of the D and D marketplace because there's a lot of people out there that are that are uh, vendors in the casual nerd space. Uh, guys like Matthew Lillard and Satine Phoenix and um, Joe Manganiello with Death Saves. All of these sort of celebrities who also have a brand, but they sell things that they themselves dig. And like Joe is very much into that heavy metal, Conan the Barbarian, very aggressive, wonderfully rock and roll uh bloody dark vibe and it's awesome and death saves and then Lillard's is very uh high-end D kits with with his group Beetle and Grimm and Satine has uh she has a uh, gilding light which is a very nurturing inclusive uh beautiful um D uh stuff so she sells hats and things like that and I was always intrigued by that I always it always I'm like well that's kind of cool and Kate has boyfriend she makes a perfume like how do you take like mm-hmm. a thing that you're into and then share your version of that thing with the world and I wanted to do like I said wouldn't it be fun if we could sort of recreate that late 70s vibe uh for people out there who might be younger D&Ders and put it out there so that was one idea that lived in my soul and I had, didn't know what to do with it because I didn't know the first thing about well, how do you contact vendors and start generating stock and designers and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So then 
I was invited on a web uh, uh, Instagram live with this this guy Brandon uh, Trader Brandon. So he was an Imagineer, a retired Imagineer who did uh, Trader Sam's, the Tiki Bar, and he was a fan of Twelve Monkeys. And he's like, "Hey, I see that you like Tiki stuff. Do you want to come and talk to me? Uh, we're both sort of seem cut from the same cloth. I'd love to interview you on my Trader Brandon transmissions." I was like, "All right." So we got talking and he's got a website where he sells tiki merchandise and all this. And he's a gamer, uh, but he plays like Fireball Island and, and other things. And he wasn't playing D&D, but we started to talk about D&D. Well, this blossomed into a conversation after the interview. And and it just grew into a friendship where I was like, I'm now his ambassador into D&D and he's my ambassador into tiki. And he goes, you know, <laughs> you know, you should, you should, uh, you should make some Mai Tai glasses. I think your your the people who are you know fans of your stuff would like some Mai Tai glasses. I'm like, oh, how do you do that? And he's like, this, 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 this. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And my son's an artist, and he could draw something up. And I was calling my 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 room where I gave the Nerd Lair. I'm like, oh, Nerd Lair would be a cool name for a thing. But there was already a a guy out there doing a thing under the Nerd Lair. I'm like, okay, can't call it that. Then I started thinking about well. Between all the nerdy shows that I've been on, Supernatural, 12 Monkeys, Buffy, Star Trek, all of that, and all the stuff I'm into, which is Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and D&D and comic books and video games, like my life is a nerd circus. And so it all, and then he, Brandon, understood Shopify and he understood the site and he understood how to build all that stuff. So he was my Sherpa into that world and it just, kind of came together and I and again going talking about having bandwidth during COVID I had time to put this stuff together yeah I think that's the main thing it's that intrinsic motivation I think yeah. you know it's that I just want to see this thing in the yeah. world I just I it doesn't exist and it's in my brain yeah. <laughs> and I want to put it out yeah. there I totally get that thing and that's you know to tie it back to improv that's the thing that I still absolutely love about improv yeah. I want to be in a play and I want to be in a play where these crazy things happen and I want it to be able to go anywhere. I'm just going to go and do it. No one's, I don't have to audition. I don't have to hope the professors like my performance. I don't need a scholarship. I'm just going to give my, I'm going to give myself the scholarship and I'm going to go and do yeah. it. Yeah. I'm going to go be a rock star. No one's going to tell me no. Well, that's just it. Like, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm certainly fortunate that I have, I have because I'm I'm neck deep in the Comic Con world, and now you know I am I'm, I'm I'm dipping my toe in the D and D streaming world, and I, I I people are fans of the shows that I'm a part of, so I had an audience to pitch it to. So yeah. it wasn't like a vacuum, you know. I I, yeah. I, I was I and and you know I've, I've done uh, this week was I did a lot of sales. I'm I'm happy to say, uh, and I have and going back to what you just said, I'm only selling things that I would buy myself. Oh yeah. Which is like dice and dice boxes and coasters and glasses and t-shirts and just fun, completely unnecessary, but, but maybe you can get a glimpse into how I see D and D or here's the inside of my head and I'm sharing my little nerd circus with you. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. All right, here's a standard podcast question. Yes. Hate to put you through the standard. I don't mind. What's your top improv moment? Um Oh my god, you know what? It's 
there's a couple uh but we and, and it was caught on videotape which is probably why i remember it so vividly but we were doing a song and uh and i was the cyborg <laughs> and i was, That's and what I he was is. singing I, and i and i had my hand upside down on my eye so it looked like a mechanical eye uh, and I was, and, and the song was like cyborg, cyborg. And then, um, and I was talking about like how I just was seeking love. That was the one thing missing from my, my, my world. And, uh, and Jay and I were singing and you guys were all backing it up with the chorus of cyborg. And then he goes, do you literally need a heart because you're a cyborg or just would a loving hug do? And then he comes to me and he hugs me. And I go, come hug me, I guess. Oh, hug me. Oh, yes. Except for the drill that extends from my chest. And a drill like went through my chest and, and, and Jay just knew what was happening. And he was like, oh, <laughs> because it was drilling through his chest, killing him. But it was one of those like. But you took his heart. Did you take his heart? No, it, well, like he was hugging me, and I had a drill that because I was a war that killed him. I, yeah, I had a drill that killed yeah. him, and so it, so he died. But it was just like that. The fact of the it went from this beautiful song, "Come hug me," I guess. Oh, hug me. Oh, yes. And then I remember the moment where I was like, "Oh, the word chest rhymes with yes." <laughs> and then it was just and I'm a cyborg death machine and all of those magical pieces fit together giving us the surprising yet inevitable conclusion to the song awesome awesome and moment. it was just like oh wow this is a powerful powerful tool in that when you go we did that and it was as good as if we had taken weeks to write and rewrite it. And in some ways it's better because of that. Discovery you know, the audience moment, yeah. is there. It's the magic of it. It's the like, yeah. it's the stunt of yeah. it, which is the thing that improv does that a lot of other theater doesn't. Yes. Except for maybe Spider-Man turn off the dark when people were breaking bones. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love taking swipes at that play. One, all right, one last question, Todd Stashwick, yeah. while I have yeah. you. I, look, we could talk about this all uh, night and we usually yeah. do. This is all we talk yeah, yeah. about in real life, but um, what what what's a lesson that either you got from improv in your life, or a lesson from a teacher that you use in improv, and they could be the same lesson that you think every improv performer fan should know. You know, it, it actually reflects back on. Well, aside from the say yes, no, 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 no. Aside from that, it's the. Um, it's the footprints in the snow uh, because as a writer, it's the footprints in the snow, which is another way of saying raw discovery into rediscovery. So it's, it's, if you want to know where a scene is going, look where it's been mm -hmm. and then use that as the template of its future. So try a thing, go out and just do a thing and then, and then turn around the dreamer examining his pillow, turn around, look at it and go, Oh, these are the component parts. Now, how do I reuse these things instead of using more energy to try and generate new, how do I deepen and re-examine 
the stuff that I've already made. So it's like when you're writing a screenplay, the back end of the screenplay answers the questions asked at the first half of the screenplay. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like something you got from like long form improv where it's like, what's my second beat? What's my third beat? I'm going to look back at the first beat. Yeah. Like yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. So yeah. it's raw discovery into rediscovery. So like when you're doing, when you're doing, uh, when you're just doing a scene, it's like you go out and you, you, you and me just start chuckle heading on stage. And then we hit mm -hmm. a certain point where we go, okay, that's the shape. Now let's just keep repeating that pattern until that pattern can no longer sustain itself. And then the scene's done. Yeah. And you can extrapolate to the other thing too. Like starting the nerd circus is like starting burn Manhattan. Yes. It's like, yes. I need posters. Yes. I need an image. I need people to help me yes. do this. And I need an audience yes. and you put it out there. But then yeah, I just start same. throwing the ideas out and then I look back and re-examine what they are. And in, in many ways I'm doing the same thing now because the nerd circus is just filled with the stuff that I was raw discovering as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And rediscovering it yeah. as an adult in a new way. It's all reincorporation. It's all pay attention. Yes, listen. Yes, yes. Listen to your partners, listen to yourself, reincorporate it. Mm -hmm. Um, do you remember a discussion we had once about you you use the metaphor of toilet paper with improv? You're like it's I toilet paper. Actually, I think that's actually I think that's a that's an Adam McKay phrase that I've been Was it? Oh, well, he said it we were teaching a class one time, I believe in in Dallas. And he just is like, you know, it's toilet paper. It just it just flushes away. I remember hearing that and just being like, "What are you talking about? These are precious baubles. These are yeah. you know we're, we're spinning gold." And then I sort of eventually got to the synthesis and said, "Well, it's both. It's both. While we have it, it's precious, but then we got to throw it away." But but that's but that's also that's also toilet paper because if you don't have that precious thing in the moment, you're screwed. It's really valuable <laughs> when you need it. Yeah, and when you're using yeah, I know. Go it, to, but you don't go to Costco the week we're going into lockdown. But then once and it's then you'll done, it's valuable. behind you. Yeah, exactly. Literally, awesome, Todd Stashwick. Okay, thanks Scott. for joining the Central. I gotta go into my podcast voice. Thanks for joining the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Thanks for having me, Glad for coming on. I would love to do this all day, but, but uh, you've got a cat to find. Life. You've got a life to live. Um, you're one of my favorite people. I love you from the deepest part of my heart. Love you too, buddy. Uh, and hope to see you when the world returns to being a world again. Where do we reach you? Where do we find you? Are you on the Twitter? At www.thenerdcircus.com. I'm on the, the Twitter at Todd Stashwick. I'm on the Insta at T Stashwick or at The Nerd Circus. Uh, all the best with The Nerd Thanks, Circus. Bubba. And the secret video games. Oh, my God. Awesome. Thanks, Todd. Peace. There you have it. That was my chat with Todd Stashwick. Honestly, we could talk for hours about this kind of stuff, and we often do. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, feel free to support us directly on our page on anchor.fm. Tell your friends about it. Check us out on the Instagrams, the Facebookses, and the Twitterers. You can email us directly at centraliaimprov at gmail.com. We're going to have more episodes coming out very soon, so be sure to like and subscribe so you get every episode directly in your ear holes. Thanks for listening to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. <laughs>